Before we start today's podcast, a quick heads up on Sherlock's VIP club. From restaurants, bars and hotels to beauty, wellness and shopping, Sherlock's partners with some of London's best destinations and hottest brands to bring its VIPs exclusive monthly offers. So why not sign up? It'll cost you just £5 a month or £50 for the year. Use your card once or twice and you'll have made that amount back in no time. For more information, visit sherlocksvip.com. In 1994, whilst decorating her boyfriend's flat, Chrissy Rocket spotted a gap in the market for high-quality yet affordable white bed linen. Launching as a 12-page brochure, the white company was born from her kitchen table as a mail-order business. From there came the little white company, her first store in Sloan Square, and numerous business and entrepreneurial awards. Now the company is a global brand with over 60 stores, more than 1,600 staff, and a turnover of over £250 million. Chrissy Rucker, welcome to your Sherlock's success story. Oh, thank you. It's lovely to be here. Well, it's lovely to be in your office. I wish people could see it. It's so beautiful. It's so calm. I feel like I need to lie down already. I've just got here. It's having a very zen influence on me. What a nice place to work. Chrissy. let's start with your early years. You left school at 16. What were your plans and ambitions at that time in your life? I left school when I was 16 and moved to London where I studied couture design. And I learned to tailor and I learned to pattern cut. And that was a time where I really learned that it is the detail that makes or breaks a product. And although I didn't become a designer, it's been so useful and it's been a skill that I've gone back to time and time again over the years as we've created new products. Mm, sure. And at that point, were you planning to become a fashion designer? Was that the idea? When I started there, I was I definitely thought I was going to be a very famous fashion designer. <laughs> Sadly, that never happened. But I had a fantastic experience. I worked for a wedding dress designer for a short while, and she realized quite quickly I wasn't cut out to be a designer. So she suggested, you know, why don't you go and work for a magazine? And at that point, I was lucky enough to get a job at Condé Nast. And I then spent the next five years working on different magazines. How did you get your job at Condé Nast? I applied to the HR department and I think I got rejected several times. My first job there was receptionist. (laughs) It was a job I absolutely loved, you know, aged 18 to sit on reception at Condé Nast is such a fun job. And I probably almost got fired for chatting far too much to Duran Duran, who (laughs) seemed to visit regularly. So you started in reception, you were there for five years. So from reception, you went to... From reception, my first job was fashion assistant on GQ. And then I went on to Brides, which was brilliant. I did fashion and beauty there. And I did a short stint on House and Garden. And I also had a wonderful stint on Vogue, working for the amazing Anna Harvey, who who I learned so much from. And I actually took a break and I did PR at Clarence for a while, which was very interesting because there I learned about, obviously, PR and marketing and also learned quite a lot about the beauty industry as well. Then I returned back to magazines and I worked at Harper's and Queen. My time on magazines was just incredibly valuable to have five years' experience in some of the best British magazines. And do you think for people 
who dream of starting their own brand, launching a product. Do you think starting in publishing is a good step to take? Well, it was fantastic because it taught me how to plan and organise a shoot, how to write copy. And I always loved being in the art department. I always think probably I was a frustrated art director. Oh, really? But I loved seeing how the pages were laid out. So that became very relevant when we did our first brochure. Mm. And it taught me how to create a consistent handwriting which, when you're building a brand, is an incredibly valuable thing to know about. Also, one of the biggest things I learnt is that when you look through a camera, less is often more, and simple is often more beautiful. And when you're creating an image, quite often you look through the lens, and if you take things out, it's a much lovelier result than if you leave too much clutter in. So during this stint in your career, you met your husband, Nick, who was integral in the creation of The White Company. Tell us about how you met and how it led to the birth of The White Company. So we met at a party and (laughs) meeting Nick was a real changing point in my life and actually my outlook on life. I used to watch him every day get up and go to work in a tiny, tiny little office in the basement in Portobello Road. And every day he'd wake up with such passion and such energy and he'd be dying to find out what had gone on the day before. And I found that really infectious and I just loved seeing his drive and passion and that really, really inspired me. And where did the idea for the White Company came? I mean, I've heard this story before, but for those that haven't heard it, what happened? Well, Nick bought his first house and it was his first bachelor pad. (laughs) So he basically had one bed. He had a few kitchen chairs. His bed linen was burgundy. His tiles were green. And when you opened the kitchen door, there were a couple of plates and probably four chip mugs bought from the garage. (laughs) So he was really excited about his new home, but he was very busy setting up his business and he just asked me if I would help. So I thought, you know, yes, I'm a journalist. You know, I can organize a shoot. I can create lovely images. How hard can this be? Anyway, off I went and my first shopping trip was an absolute disaster. I had a complete confidence crisis. There was just so much choice. So much choice, so much colour, so much manic pattern, and none of it felt right. You know, I was completely overwhelmed, and it made me realise actually, you know, kitting out your first home is actually not a very easy thing to do. Anyway, so I retreated back home and thought, okay, let's tackle this like a shoot, and let's think about creating a beautiful image. And so I just decided to keep it simple. I loved white. And so I just decided to buy white towels, white china, white bed linen, white sheets. So off I went again, but actually found it was incredibly difficult to do. Back then, at that time, there were two very sort of clear ends of the scale. So you had on one hand, you had fabulous designer, beautiful quality, great attention to detail, but expensive. Or you had High Street, which was poor quality lacking in design but much more affordable so it was really hard to do it was really hard to find all of these white things and then funnily enough we went and had lunch with Nick's sister and she'd just moved house she'd just been through the same experience and we ended up saying wouldn't it be fantastic if there was a company that just sold white things that (laughs) were both gorgeous and beautifully designed but also affordable and that's really how the white company began. And had you always dreamt of having your own business? Or did meeting Nick 
people listening that don't know, this is the founder of Charles Turret. Were you looking at him thinking, I want a bit of the action? And then you saw there were no sheets. You came up with this idea and thought, right, I'm going to do it. Had you always wanted to start to do your own thing? When I was at school, I suddenly produced a fashion show and I did it for charity. So I had in me a really strong desire to create. Never really thought about starting my own business. And so seeing Nick and seeing his outlook and seeing how much he loved it and enjoyed it was definitely a very, very strong inspiration for me. So you sat there having lunch with your now sister-in-law and you said, right, there needs to be this company that sells everything white. You'd worked on House and Gardens, had you, at this point? I'd worked on House and Garden for a little while. So what happened next? Did you just go home, start writing a business plan, talk us through the story and how it evolved from this idea at lunch to actually becoming a business? I was honestly just so excited about it. I literally couldn't sleep and it kept me awake for weeks. And so I knew it was something that I believed so passionately in. I carried on working for about four months. And during that time, I got hold of some of the past exhibition catalogues and I started looking for my first suppliers. So I then did a trip to Europe And the moment I really knew I could do it was when I found these fantastic first suppliers who were supplying leading designer brands. But actually, when I saw how much I could sell the product, if I bought the product in and sold it directly to the customer, I knew I could deliver fantastic quality, but much, much more affordably. And what products were you looking to launch with at this point? So we started with just three or four ranges of bed linen, a set of china, some white napkins, a bathrobe, white towels. So quite a small range. And had you done any market research or were you just going with your gut? Okay, so drawing on my journalist experience, I rather naughtily rang up a few department stores pretending that I was writing a piece for a magazine. And I said, you know, could you just tell me what percentage of sales you do in white bed linen and the answer was always consistently over 50% so I thought okay this feels like a good starting place. So that was the extent of your market research? So and then I obviously asked lots of friends and family most of them told me I was mad (laughs) and why on earth would anybody want to buy just white sheets? And Nick what was he saying yeah I'll go and do it I think it's great. Yeah Nick and Susie they believed passionately in the idea and they said yeah go on just do it just make it happen so I just did it. I was saying before you were one of the sort of first big female entrepreneurs one of a small group of women you know Emma Bridgewater, Annie Highmarsh, you know you, Nathalie Massonet you know there, there was a collection of women doing some really exciting things but it was quite new wasn't it who were you going to for advice and was anyone inspiring you? I think, you know, I was always very, very inspired by the Estee Lauder story. I just remembered that idea. She started with one lipstick. Mm. And then, you know, look at what a fantastic, huge global brand it's become today. And also, I think what's so lovely about it is it's remained being run by the family as well. The funny thing is, you know, I was 23 and young and naive. And I just thought, very inspired by Nick. You know, also people like Johnny Bowden at the time had started Bowden very successfully. Yeah. It was a time when small niche mail order catalogues were starting to take off. Absolutely. So I felt very comfortable, you know, doing photography and producing things. 
And I just thought, you know what, I'll give it a go and I'll do it for a year. And if it doesn't work, I'll just get another job. And probably without digital in 1994, it wasn't quite so intimidating as it is now. So you went and you met these suppliers and you thought, great, (laughs) there's a lot of margin here. And I can sell these at a really sensible price. What happened next? And were you designing the pieces that you were going to produce by these manufacturers? Yeah. So you went to see them. So I found my first set of suppliers and placed my first order. And how many were you ordering in your first order? Oh, I mean, not very many pieces. So maybe I was ordering like 50 pieces of something. So not huge orders. But actually, they were European suppliers. And the beauty of that is that we could order in some small quantities Mm -hmm. and we only had a very small supply base as well so we didn't overcomplicate it so I ordered the product shot the brochure I shot the brochure the weekend before I resigned then I resigned and quietly as I worked my notice out I was putting the brochure together with a brochure designer and I left and I started the day after I left. Did you feel that eliminating this middleman was really the key to success? And how much was price a factor in what you were doing? Well, I think the real beauty is is that we were buying the product directly from source and selling it directly to the customer. Whereas a lot of other brands were selling through third parties. So there was another layer of cost being added through. Sure. And how did you promote the business? So you had this brochure that you shot. How are you then getting it out to the consumer? Well, I had to build a database. And so it started with friends, friends of friends, friends of friends, friends. (laughs) I sort of begged, borrowed and stole and asked as many people as possible to recommend friends who might be interested. But I really drew on my PR experience and my magazine experience. So I wrote a press release and... To this day, the wonderful Lucia van der Post. She wrote the most fabulous piece in the FT the week before we launched. And I'm constantly indebted to her because I always say that she launched us. And, you know, it started like that, really. I mean, I didn't have any money to spend on marketing or advertising. So I built for the first year almost entirely through gaining PR. And did Lucia's piece come out and suddenly the sales came in? Was it that measurable? Yeah. Really? And how are people ordering? By phone? Yes. I mean, lots of people by phone because it was a mail-order brochure. Yeah. And you were presumably fulfilling from home, were you? Yes. So we took the orders. We had two phones, a fax machine and a computer. I didn't know how to work. I took the orders, packed them, and we'd load them up into a tiny little mini-metro at the end of the day and take them to the post office. Really? As simple as that. <laughs> and you said you didn't have any money to invest in marketing. Did you have any money to invest in the business? And obviously, you know, investing in stock is tough when you start out yeah. in the retail game. Yeah. How are you funding it um, in those um, early days? So I basically sold some shares that my grandmother had left me. So I started the business with £6,000. And that bought the first amount of stock. That paid for the first brochure. And then I had to sort of get some sales in to keep the cash flow going. Later on, I won a small competition. I won the She and Midland Bank Small Business Award. So that gave me an injection of £5,000. And I also had a small government grant from an organisation called Centec, who were the small startup business support system then. And talk to us about how the product line changed and evolved. So you started with bed sheets and towels and you yeah. said some mugs and a you know, bit of crockery. What came next? Talk to us through, you know, the story of the product and the range growing. I mean, it's vast now, but yeah. which categories did you add and when? 
In a funny way, I think really it just grew with my life. As I sort of went on the journey, I started off sort of tackling really a first home and then building on that. And it was all about finding things that I wanted for my home and to add into the home. Then, of course, we got married. I had the children. The little white company was born. The things that the children needed. And it's just sort of constantly grown and evolved. And also, I think over the years, we've worked with some wonderful sort of stylists who've inspired us and we've learned that you know there are so many easy simple styling tips and tricks that you can do that really make a house feel extra special and Mm. a wonderful home. So going back to the beginning what were the early challenges that you were facing? I mean it's an amazing story it's the success story but I'm sure it wasn't always plain sailing. What were you you dealing with in those early days? Technology was a huge challenge. I mean I didn't know really anything about technology. You had to work Mm. a computer, how to create a database. So that was something I had to really learn fast (laughs) about. I mean, you make so many mistakes. I mean, my goodness, first year of business, you make a huge amount of mistakes. You get some of your suppliers wrong. Your products come in. They're not quite what you think they're going to be. We had one factory, the roof blew off it, and so they just simply didn't deliver. It's just one thing after another happens, and you learn really fast. You just think, okay, well, you know, that happens, so... I'll be really aware of that next time. Do you ever lose your cool? I can't imagine you do. You seem just (laughs) the epitome of calm. Calm and collected. I think that's years of riding, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Going into the ring and pretending that you're really calm, but on the surface you're peddling like mad. And what came first? Store, e-com? I mean, you sold via mail order, and now there are myriad ways you can buy white company products. But what came next? So for many years, we were just a small brochure. And then we started to find a lot of customers were ringing us up because they wanted to come and see and touch and smell and actually check the quality. Because I think in those days, customers didn't believe you could buy great quality by mail order. So we started up a little showroom and very quickly we were overwhelmed by people wanting to come and see things. And we couldn't manage it and it didn't look beautiful. So we just thought, okay, it's time. We'll open our first shop. So the shop came first and very soon after, that's just when the web was starting to take off and digital was starting to take off. So then the website came pretty quickly afterwards. And the first shop was? In Simmons Street, just opposite the back door of Mm -hmm. Peter Jones. Mm -hmm. And was that an easy process? I mean, retail's tough. How have you found your journey from one store to over 60? Well, we started very small. The first shop wasn't very big. It was probably only 1,500 square feet. Today, the store in Simmons Street is 8,000 square feet. So, you know, start small, keeping tight and and learning as you go. You know, Mm. some things will work, some things won't work. It's a constant sort of journey of learning, really. And who were your first hires in the business? Who did you bring in and when? So in the first year, my sister came to help me a little bit in her college holidays And then by the end of the first year, I hired my first two employees who were fantastic. And they helped me with the orders and the customers. And, you know, we all just sat on the phone, answering the phone and taking the orders. And then as the business has grown and evolved, obviously building a team has been absolutely crucial and critical to being able to scale it. When we reached six years old, I had my first MD 
And, and that's quite early for a business. Why were you not in that role? Probably one of the most important things as a business owner you need to do is really sort of recognise where you add value and where you're not an expert and where you don't add value. And really, I just constantly took a really good hard look at myself to try and work out where's my time wisely spent and where do I need experts around me to help make the things that I don't really know enough about mm. work really well. So you brought in an MD? Brought in my first MD, yeah. And that was a success? Yeah. And at what point did you go, I'm really going to change the retail landscape here? I mean, there must have been a sort of realisation that you were really onto something huge. When did you feel that? I'd never really sort of thought of it like that. The first year went well. And I was just really excited by it. So I just thought, okay, let's just keep going. And, you know, for the first 10, 15 years, you know, we just decided we would try and double the size of the business each year. And do you now stop and go, wow, I've done all right? You know, so many entrepreneurs say they don't because they're always thinking of yeah, the next thing. Yeah. But God, I mean, you must, you should do. I hope you do. Yeah. I feel so incredibly lucky and so proud of the incredible team that we have here at the White Company because I couldn't do it without them. Of course. But I'm definitely somebody who's constantly looking forward. I don't look back mm. and I'm always sort of looking for, ooh, you know, what's yeah. the next thing and what's the next stage. So with that, what is the key to generating growth? A lot of people with a, a nice business they employ you know a handful of people whatever it is and it ticks along and they have a nice lifestyle what do you think the key is to taking it to a level where you become a serious player having a really clear vision and having goals to really work towards is absolutely essential so in the early days it was probably a three-year plan but now we always have a five-year plan and we go away and we build that plan together and we work with every single person from every area of the business. So it's a huge joint effort. And we make time to get out of the business, to step out of it, and to try and vision what we want to look like. First of all, in 10 years' time, and then you boil it down to, actually, now let's work on the first five years. And you just create a plan. And I think it's great to have a plan to work towards we're also very lucky. I think what well, you know, we're privately owned. So it's a roller coaster building a business. And there are times when you can go really fast. And there are times when actually, I believe, you need to actively slow down and take a breather. And you kind of need to take those moments to get yourself ready to go on the next phase of growth. Mm. So it might be that your warehouse isn't big enough and not coping, or it might be that you just haven't got the, the size of team or enough experience in the business at that moment to deliver the next phase. Mm -hmm. But by having a fantastic plan, you can break it down into stages. And I'm a great believer in trying every year to conquer five things brilliantly than trying to attempt to do 20 things badly. Okay, five things brilliantly, I like that. How much do you think price is a factor? I mean, I mentioned that earlier on. Yeah. People often say, you know, if you want to open a restaurant, open a fish and chip shop, you have maintained a sensible, attainable price, but, you know, still creating a luxury product. Do you think that's a big factor in your success? I think it's always been at the heart of what we do. You know, we've always wanted to deliver fantastic quality that is a very fair price and that is affordable. And our customers happily, you know, tell us time and time again that they love our quality. Some do go off and they do shop with other brands, but 
you know, happily, often they come back and they say, actually, your quality is worth it. And I think that's a really important part of our DNA, really. We possibly have the most passionate product development team on the planet. <laughs> I drive them all mad <laughs> because I always like to go back to them and say, okay, well, this is really nice, but now how can we make it even better? And it's going back to that thing that it is detail that makes or breaks a product, and it is detail that often makes it really worth it mm. and special. And in a similar vein, in terms of talking about whether the price is a factor in your success, is not following the trends a factor in your success? Does that allow you to have products that you don't need to discontinue, to have less newness? Do you still feel the pressure to have lots of newness despite the fact that you don't follow the trends? Yeah. I think it's amazing that you keep innovating You know, every season, yet you're still so true to your original ethos. I've always just really loved perfect simplicity and versatility of white it's classic yet modern and just like a little black dress it's wonderfully timeless too i think whoever we are whatever our style white just always works Mm. in some way and that's not saying that everybody has to have a completely white home but i believe it's a fantastic canvas on which to build it's a wonderfully peaceful color to live with. And it has this almost spa-like quality, mm. which in our hectic world is a really lovely thing to come home to. I also sort of wanted the business to be memorable and to be really different and to have a really strong point of view as a brand. And if nothing else, that people would remember us for being the company that just sold white things. Mm. And I think with every product we make, we are definitely not a trend-driven brand. We are a brand that is about comfort and timeless, effortless style that you can love today, tomorrow and forever. And do you think other entrepreneurs listening should make a conscious effort to move away from the trends? Do you think that's given you a bit more freedom, perhaps? In today's world, it's very crowded and it's very noisy. And it feels like there are an awful lot of people doing the same thing. So I think it's really important to have your own point of view and the thing that makes you different and the thing that makes you stand out and the thing that makes you a destination. I think it also, it makes you more sustainable. I know sustainability is close to your heart, but, you know, not following the trends, being timeless, allows you to be more sustainable, right? And how important is sustainability to the business? Sustainability is at the heart of everything we do. And so we're very consciously creating product that we believe will last. Down the test of time, yeah. yes. Yeah, which it does, I'm sure, for everybody listening. Yeah. Who Obviously, we're companies. working really hard to source from the right places mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about digital, because in the midst of the business's growth came the internet, came e-commerce, a whole world you probably thought you would never be in, and well, no one could have predicted they'd be in. How did you deal with that? Well, we had to hire a digital (laughs) director. Yes, I mean, obviously taking the leap into digital was a really exciting time and a new challenge. And it was trying to work out how to bring the brand alive on the screen. So we worked really, really hard at that. It's the same thing. It's just you start and then you learn and you see what happens and then you build on it. But you were quite early to e-commerce, weren't you? Because we started as a direct business and a brochure business. We built a database before we had a retail outlet. You created the Little White Company, as you said, when you had children. What about your clothing range? That came before the Little White Company, did it? We definitely had bathrobes and some nightwear, first of all. 
So we started off very much as an extension of the bed and bath, and then the little white company came along, and with that came children's oh, bed linen just such and excitement pajamas. though from consumers. I mean, yeah. that must have been oh, such an exciting time because. Yeah. There was nothing else at that price point with your kind of product. I mean, I think I remember my first child, I think probably three out of every four gifts were from Little White Company. I mean, literally, I mean, amazing what you created there. It was a fantastic new aspect to the business as well, because in fact, what it also enabled us to do was to introduce the brand to a younger customer as well. And talk to us about all your women's clothing. I mean, the range of women's clothing now is pretty vast, isn't it? Has that been quite challenging? We've grown clothing gradually and over time. And really, we just apply the same ethos to clothing that we apply to home. So it needs to be great quality. It needs to be beautifully designed. And it needs to be a piece that you'll love wearing, Mm. you know, in 10 years' time as much as you do today. And in terms of clothing, what are the best sellers? Coming into autumn... I mean, your knitwear must be huge. Yeah, our knitwear is incredibly popular. Our nightwear is very, very successful. But it's really across the board. And coming into Christmas, cashmere bed socks. Always (laughs) the best seller. Are they? Yeah. What are your other big sellers? So knitwear, obviously, no-brainer. Who doesn't love your knitwear? Yeah. Cashmere bed socks, we said, they're pretty huge. the, The brand is very much anchored by home. So bed and bath. And does oh. that outweigh women's wear? Yeah. So bed, bath, home, scented products, candles and lovely spa products for the bathroom. Through to nightwear and to robes and slippers and then the entire women's wear range. So that's everything from the perfect white shirt through to a lovely piece of cashmere knitwear through to a lovely soft coat. You're very cozy, you do very snuggly. And uh, talk to you about your skincare, because that's been really well received, yes. hasn't it? Yes. And I've really noticed the reaction you've had from sort of knowledgeable industry experts. Have you been surprised by it? Well, I think the beauty world is obviously a huge passion of mine because I was a beauty journalist and I worked with Clarence for a, a while. So that was a real passion project for me. But also I just think that skincare has become so overwhelming. And, you know, there really are the key foundations to great skincare. Mm. And that is, you know, a brilliant cleanser. I really, really passionately believe that our cleanser is the best one out there. And I wanted it to be able to be used as a wash-off cleanser, as well as a balm and massage and hot cloth cleanser. That is a really fantastic product. The Super Serum is just brilliant for firming, lifting, toning, fantastic eye product, which works above the eye as well as underneath the eye, and we get some brilliant feedback on that. And then a wonderful moisturiser, and our night oil, of course. And your night oil. oil. (laughs) Beauty sleep in a bottle. Yeah, exactly. And how involved are you in the creation of the skincare range? I was... You lived and breathed it? Yes, yes. (laughs) And I tested it to the nth degree. Well, I'm sitting here looking at beautiful skin, so if that's anything to go by, it's definitely worth it. How seasonal is the business? I mean, we think of you as a, you know, God, Christmas is nuts in your stores, isn't it? I mean, I'm trying to buy something in a hurry once in your store, and I mean, the snaking queue was vast. I mean, I imagine you don't want to just be a seasonal business. You don't just want to be a gifting business. And, you know, you have skincare, you have clothing, baby gifts. But has that been a concern for you over the years? Is that something you've worked hard not to be? I mean, we have four seasons. So 
Spring, traditionally, in retail, I think across the board, is a little quieter mm -hmm. than other times of years. Summer gets incredibly busy again because it's a different type of living. It's outdoor living. It's a season when we, goodness, we can really celebrate white in summer with yeah. white clothing. So we always love that. And then autumn, it's about getting cosy and, you know, hunkering down again and that sort of moment of switching back and then preparing, of course, for Christmas, which is always incredibly busy <laughs> for us. Yeah. And talk to us about the US. Yes. You've been in the US for a few years now. That, you know, they say can make or break a business. It's going well, I hear. Yep. So we're very excited to be in the US. We started quite cautiously and we launched with digital only. We now have three stores there. So we have one in Manhattan, we have one in Short Hills, and we did a pop-up this summer, which was really exciting in the Hamptons. Oh, wow. And is there a big appetite for your products? The lovely thing is, is that we've seen happily, the American customer seems to like the same products that the British customer likes, so that's right, fantastic. Right, that's good. And we are learning I think when you launch in a new country and you go in in a small way, it's about learning how to curate the range in the right way and to start with a smaller range so you can build and learn from that. And we're really excited. We're absolutely delighted with how it went in the Hamptons this year. We hope to return and do another pop-up next year. And we're basically just going to carry on developing and growing our digital recruitment. We've got a very exciting partnership with Nordstrom and we will be in five stores with Nordstrom before Christmas. And then that's going to roll out to more stores next year. Wow, so it's a really stuff. exciting time. Yeah. It feels like you've done everything quite cautiously. Mm -hmm. I know you haven't raised any money. Do you think you're still here and you've, again, been successful because you haven't gone for it and raised these huge amounts of money and then spent the loan, it hasn't worked out, and then that's jeopardised the business? And would you advise other entrepreneurs to follow the same course? My motto for growing the business has always been strong and safe. I think actually the beauty of having a privately owned business is you can control the rate at which it grows. It's interesting to watch sometimes what happens with other businesses when they get bought and sold and have huge amount of investment. And it's very easy to spend money mm. when you have huge amount of investment. But when you don't have a huge amount of investment, you have to spend your money really wisely mm. and carefully. And I think that's really what we've tried to concentrate on. I've also worked really, really hard to keep the brand intact and to keep it pure. When you're growing a brand, I think this is the bit that can become a real challenge because I often talk about the example of a blue shirt, but sometimes with some items, you might sell a white shirt against a blue shirt. And you might find that the blue shirt sells better than the white shirt. So your merchandising team, who obviously are trying to grow the profitability of the business, will tell you to sell more blue shirts. <laughs> but actually, that would be completely the wrong thing mm, to do quite. for the brand. So I think it's a combination of our motto has always been grow strong, grow safe, pause when you need to, and get yourselves really ready for the next phase of growth. Then grow strong again. You've obviously had to delegate a lot over the years. You said you bought an MD after six years. I briefly met your CEO when, when I came in. So you are delegating, but what are the bits that you've felt you've had to keep a really tight grip on? The pieces that I'm utterly passionate and I feel I can add the most value in are the brand, the product, and the customer experience. 
How do you see the future for the White Company? I mean, I know you've got an amazing book out tomorrow. When this comes out, it will be out. It's sitting in front of me. For the love of white, it's beautiful. It's your first coffee table book. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, So that's one project. You've done this project now. Have you loved this project? Well, the book has been a huge passion project. I think as we reach the grand old age of being 25, we wondered what is the best way to celebrate this. And then going back to the beginning of the journey, and that feeling of, you know, how do I create a first home and how overwhelming that felt and how difficult I found it. We thought actually how lovely to celebrate being 25 with a book on interiors. And so we've got 12 gorgeous homes, all very different. Some are tiny, some are bigger, some are in the town, some are in the country, some are on the coast. And we wanted really just to celebrate the different ways with white. Mm. And there are so many different ways of building a white and neutral home. And on that note, I mean, if you want some inspiration for it, get the book. But for people listening, if they love white interiors and they want to go down that route, what interiors advice would you, Chrissy Rucker, give them? Is it about texture? Is it about shades of white? How do you have a white home and not make it boring? And make it look as beautiful as everything here and as beautiful as everything in the book? We believe passionately that whoever you are, wherever you live, whatever your style is, there's a place for white in everyone's life. And that might not mean that it's all white. Mm -hmm. But I think starting by thinking through the layout and the flow of the rooms and including some adjustable lighting to ensure that they don't become too bright or too sterile is a really important start. And also thinking through about having storage so that you can hide things away and not have too much Mm -hmm. clutter creates a fantastic sense of order. I always love to choose soft soothing palette of whites, whites and off-whites, and some neutrals. Remembering that white is not one colour, but a thousand tones and shades, all subtly, slightly different from each other. White pigments and paints are fantastic because not only do they bring room to life, but they also accentuate gorgeous architectural details or mouldings or woodwork. Mm. Using a mixture of natural materials and finishes creates texture and lovely character. So timber, stone, sizal floors, Mm. and touches of greenery, bringing hints of the outside world in. The timber tables that I've seen in your offices are... Fantastic. Yeah. And trees, you know, I have a huge passion for indoor trees. But I think that bringing the outside world in, and if possible, lighting a lovely fire. Creating small groupings of art or ceramics or some bowls, you know, creating little pleasing compositions. They add interest on shelves and coffee tables. And occasional darker shades with some pieces of furniture or decorative accents or cushions, throws and blankets, add in some lovely layers and subtle contrast. And I think, again, you know, in our hectic age and era of constant connectivity, creating a bedroom that is a truly calm space where we can retreat and sleep well too. A place where you have a supremely comfortable bed, beautiful Mm -hmm. white linens, of course. Of course. Blissfully comfortable duvets and pillows that make climbing into bed a joy. Equally, bathrooms that have a spa-like quality and feel soft and layered with lovely white towels, soft white bathrobe and flickering candlelight just make it a wonderfully magical place to unwind and disconnect. I think white and neutral homes need to be emotive and they need to feel sensory. 
So things like scented candles and diffusers help create a mood and they help create a warmth. There's nothing lovelier than a flickering flame to help soothe and relax you. And there's nothing lovelier than fabrics and throws and textures that feel wonderful to the mm. touch. It's all very calm, isn't it? <laughs> Thank you, Chrissy. So, you've book, got the book. The book is full. And I think, actually, you know, the other one thing I would say about the book is that, you know, what I learned as I've been going on this journey, working with all these wonderful photographers and stylists and some interior designers who've helped me with my own homes, is there are some really simple tricks and mm. easy tips that you can do. And they're not difficult and they're not complicated mm. and they make all the difference. Well, I'm sure it's going to be hugely successful. What else does the future hold for the White Company? What can you tell us? Well, I think it's really important to have ambition as you grow. So we hope in the next five years, we're aiming to double the size of the business if we can. And that will include international expansion. It will include consistent expansion of the product range here and constantly searching to recruit new customers and younger customers. Mm -hmm. But we're incredibly excited about the future and we plan to continue both working on digital and retail. And in 25 years, you must have had a lot of people knock on your door and try and buy the white company. Why have you never sold it? Will you ever sell it? I don't think of it as a business to trade. It's genuinely my fifth child. It's something I love doing. And, you know, I take every decade as it comes, but I'm really looking forward to the next one. Mm -hmm. And maybe, with any luck, one of my children might show some signs of interest in in coming and getting involved. So I've got to ask you about your children. We always ask female entrepreneurs about their children. You know, we all want to know how other women are doing it. Yeah. How have you managed to bring up four children and create this? What advice would you give to people listening? It's a roller coaster, and I think it's something you learn to navigate as you go on the journey. But my life is run off a spreadsheet. I have six columns, one for me, one for Nick, and one for each of the four children. And the way I make it work as a working mum is all the children's most important dates go in first and then everything else has to work around it. You have to become really good at saying no to things. Mm. And I think you realise very quickly that you've just got to decide what are the things that are most important for you this year. Concentrate on those. And then it changes every year. You're back to your five brilliant things. Do you work full time? The funny thing is, when it's your business, I think you work... In your mind, 24-7, and every day, wherever I go, there's always something that touches me about the business. Physically, I'm in the office three days a week. I work from home two days a week, but it's always there in the back of my mind. And do you try and take more time off in the school holidays? Yep, I take longer stints off, and then I've been reading this fantastic book, which is called The 5am Plan. Does it involve getting up at five o'clock in the morning? So, you know, there's that wonderful thing when you go to America and you wake up naturally at five o'clock in the morning because of the time difference. (laughs) And it's just about creating space. So I always find when I go to America, it's that magical moment of having between five o'clock and seven o'clock in the morning of two absolutely clear hours where you can catch up on things and then get on with your day. 
Do you do that in the UK? Do you get up really early? Are you an early morning person to get things done? No, but I'd love to think I could. <laughs> We'd all like to think we could, so that we can cope with the tiredness for the rest of the day. Yeah. No, no, sleeping for eight hours a day is far more important. Is that key for you? Yes, again, going back to the working mum piece, you do have to really take care of yourself and you have to really take care of your health. So eat well, stay fit and sleep well. There's a very scary statistic that if you sleep for six hours a night instead of eight hours a night, your cognitive ability is actually halved. There are some shocking statistics along the lines of if you have two hours less sleep a night, you are the equivalent of somebody who is X units over the limit behind the wheel. It's quite shocking, really, yes. the, the impact yeah. it can have. And tell me, how does it work? You're two entrepreneurs mm-hmm. in one marriage, but not on the same business. I mean, I meet a lot of entrepreneurs who are running businesses with their other halves. You're running separate businesses. Mm-hmm. That must be pretty full on. It's actually rather wonderful because we both really understand each other's lives and we work really, really hard to be as present and with the children as much as possible. And the weekends are sacrosanct for the children. And then the lovely thing is, is that because we understand each other's businesses a little, it's a fantastic thing to be able to talk things through with your husband yeah when you need to any rivalry (laughs) well there is a very strong rivalry at the moment because we're both entering the palace to palace bike ride and we have got a charles tirrett v the white company see who can raise the most money (laughs) goal going on at the moment so i hope we're gonna win (laughs) noted well send us the link finally chrissy people listening hoping to emulate a tiny bit of your success what advice would you give them Find something that you love doing because you're going to do it for a very long time and find something that you're absolutely passionate about and then build the most incredible team around you and build amazing relationships with the people who are going to help you. Well, what a good place to end. Chrissy. thank you. I have been wanting to interview you for our success stories for a long time, so it's a real privilege to be here, to be in your beautiful office, to have a copy of your beautiful book in front of me Thank you so much. You know, who isn't a fan? And, you know, I can't wait to see what the future has to hold for the White Company. And thank you very much. And we just want to say we are such fans of Sherlux and you've done such a phenomenal job with it. So huge congratulations to you you and your team. Thank you. That's it for this week. If you enjoyed that, then do please rate, review, subscribe and tell your friends. We'll be back soon. Bye bye.